Chapter 8 of Super Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Super Women by Albert Payson Terhune. Chapter 8 George Sand, the Hopelessly Ugly Siren. A very famous woman discovered once that men are not paragons of fidelity. Or, finding that one man was not, she decided that all men were alike. And to Jules Sandeau, who had deceived her, she exclaimed in fine melodrama frenzy, My heart is a grave! From the number of its occupants, drawled Sandeau, I should rather call it a cemetery. The woman, too angry to grasp the meaning of the ungallant speech, raged on. But I will be avenged. I shall write the tragedy of my love in romance form, and why not in city directory form, suggested the man, and the loverly conversation ended in hysterics. The woman was Amandine Lucille Aurore Dupin du Devant. History, literature, and the annals of superwomen know her as George Sand. As one may glean from her verbal tilt with Sandeau, she was not a recluse or a misanthropist. In fact, she numbered her ardent wooers by the dozen. Her love life began at a convent school when she was little more than a child, and it endured until old age set in. Perhaps a list of its victims, as Sandeau so cruelly hinted, would have resembled a city directory. It certainly would have borne a striking likeness to a cyclopedic index of Europe's 19th century celebrities, for it embraced such immortal names as de Musset, Sandeau, Balzac, Chopin, Carlyle, Prosper Merimee, Liszt, Dumas, and many another. So many demigods knelt at her shrine that at last she wrote, I am sick of great men. I would far rather see them in Plutarch than in real life. In Plutarch, or in marble, or in bronze, their human side would not disgust me so. And the personality, the appearance, the Venusberg charm of this heart monopolist? One instinctively pictures a svelte form, a face that launched a thousand ships, and all the rest of the sirenic paraphernalia that instinctively attach themselves to one's mental vision of a wholesale fracturer of hearts. Here is Balzac's description of her. It is found in a letter written to Madame Hanska in 1838, when George Sand was at the acme of her superwoman career. I found her in her dressing gown, smoking an after-dinner cigar, beside the fire, in an immense room. She wore very pretty yellow slippers with fringes, coquettish stockings, and red trousers. Physically, she has acquired a double chin, like a well-fed priest. She has not a single white hair, in spite of her terrible misfortunes. Her beautiful eyes are as sparkling as ever. When she is sunk in thought, 
she looks just as stupid as formerly as i told her for her expression lies wholly in her eyes she goes to bed at six in the morning and rises at noon i go to bed at six in the evening and rise at midnight but of course i am conforming myself to her habits she smokes to excess and plays perhaps too much the grand dame carlyle still less merciful snarls forth the following wholly carlylean epitome of george sand's looks she has the face of a horse another contemporary writer declares her hair is as black and shiny as ebony her swarthy face is red and heavy her expression fierce and defiant yet dull so much for the verity of traditional siren dreams so much too for the theory that beauty or daintiness or femininity has anything to do with the nameless charm of the world's superwomen george sand came honestly if left-handedly by her cardiac prowess for she was a great-great-granddaughter of adrienne le couvreur and marshal saxe two of history's stellar heartbreakers a fact of which she made much her father was a french army officer lieutenant dupin and as a mere baby his only daughter aurore was acclaimed daughter of the regiment decked out in a tiny uniform the ugly duckling ran wild in the army posts where her father was stationed and joined right boisterously in the soldiers rough sports later she was sent to a convent from her own description of this particular retreat it was a place that crushed out all normal and childish ideas and filled the growing mind with a morbid melancholy yet it was there that love first found the girl the victim or victor was one stephane de grandsein professor of physiology under his tuition she developed a queer craving for dissection a fad she followed in psychic form through life the love scenes between herself and her adored professor were usually enacted while they were together dissecting a leg or an arm or probing the mysteries of retina and cornea it was a semi-gruesome unromantic episode and it ended with suddenness when the pupil was sent out into the world there a husband was found for her he was casimir du devant a man she liked well enough and who was mildly fond of her they lived together for a time in modified content two children were born to them by and by casimir took to drink many people refused to blame him indeed there are present-day students of george sand's life who can find a host of excuses for his bibulous failings but once coming home from a spree casimir forgot to take his wife's lofty reproaches with his wonted good nature in a flash of drunken anger he struck her and she left him the high spirit of her active independence is marred just a little by the fact that she chanced to be in love with another man this other man was aurelien de Seize, a ponderous country magistrate the affair was brief presently the two had parted and george sand penniless 
went to Paris to make a living by literature. She obtained hack work of a sort, lived in the typical drafty garret so dear to unrecognized genius, and earned for a time only fifteen francs, three dollars, a month. It was the customary nadir, wherein one gathers equipment for success. Then she met Jules Sandeau. He was a lawyer who dabbled in literature. He fell in love with the lonely woman, and she with him. They formed a literary partnership. Together they wrote novels, and began to achieve a certain measure of good luck. Their novels were signed George Sand. Why, no one knows. It was a pen name devised by the feminine member of the novelistic firm. But before long, Sandeau was left far behind in the race for fame. His more or less fair partner wrote a novel on her own account. It was Indiana. Like Byron, she woke one morning to find herself famous. The book had lifted her forever out of obscurity and need. At about the same period, she entered Sandow's study one day just in time to see him kiss another woman. The other woman chanced to be their laundress, who, presumably, was more kissable, if less inspiring, than was the newly acclaimed celebrity on whom Sando had been lavishing his fickle affections. There was a scene, unequaled for violence in any of their joint novels, and, in the course of it, occurred the repartee recorded at the beginning of this story. As an upshot, Sando followed Dudevant, de Cez, Grandsein, and the rest into the limbo of George Sand's discarded lovers, where he was soon to be joined by many another and far greater man. Her faith in men, shattered for at least the fourth time, George Sand forswore fidelity and resolved to make others suffer, even as she liked to imagine she herself had suffered. The literary world was, by this time, cheering itself hoarse over her, and literary giants were vying for her love. Out of the swarm, she selected Prosper Merimee, the author of Carmen was then in his prime as a lion of the salons. To him, George Sand gave her heart irrevocably and forever. Through youth and maturity, they worshipped each other for eight consecutive days. On the ninth day, George Sand informed Carmen's creator that he was far too cynical to be her ideal any longer. Merimee retorted that her pose of divine exaltation was better suited to an angel than to an ugly woman who continually smoked cigars and who swore as pyrotechnically as one of her father's most loquacious troopers. So the romance ended. Followed a bevy of loves well-nigh as brief, most of whose heroes' names are emblazoned on the bookbacks of the world's libraries. And after this populous interregnum, came Alfred de Musset. De Musset was a mere boy, but his wonderful poetry had already awakened Europe to ecstasy. He was the beau ideal of a million youthful lovers and their sweethearts, even as a generation earlier Byron had been. It was in 1833 that he and George Sand met. 
de musset had seen her from afar and had begged for an introduction she was six years older than he and the prettiest girls in france were pleading wistfully for his smile but at sight he loved the horse-faced almost middle-aged swearer of strange oaths and smoker of strong cigars hence his plea to be introduced Beuve, to whom he made the request wrote asking leave to bring him to one of george sand's at homes the same day she returned a most positive refusal writing i do not want you to introduce de musset to me he is a fop and we would not suit each other instead bring dumas in whose art i have found a soul if only the soul of a commercial traveller but de musset unrebuffed succeeded in his ambition he managed to secure an introduction to her at a banquet given by the revue des deux mondes editors and almost at once his love was reciprocated then began a union that was alternately the interest the scandal and the laughing stock of a continent each of the lovers was a genius each had been pedestalled by the world each was supposed to live on a rarefied plain far above the heads or the ken of mere earth folk the love affair of two such immortals might reasonably be expected was expected to be akin to the noble romances of poetry as a matter of fact its three-year course was one long series of babyish spats of ridiculous scenes and of behavior worthier the inmates of a madhouse or a kindergarten than of the decade's two master intellects george sand expected de musset to live on the heights of bloodless idealism when he did so she berated him as heartless when he failed to she denounced him as an animal she was never content with whatever course he might follow yet she was madly in love with him during their brief separations she avalanched him with letters some furious some imploring some wildly affectionate some drearily commonplace here is an extract from one displaying a fair sample of her warmer moods it is nothing to you to have tamed the pride of such a woman as i and to have stretched me a suppliant at your feet it is nothing to you that i am dying of love torment of my life that you are in the course of the cranky affair they journeyed to italy there in turn both fell ill and there through the medium of the sick-room both met a handsome young italian doctor pietro pagello who by the way was still living a very few years ago at the age of ninety pagello's dark good looks and his vivacity temporarily swept george sand's heart far out of poor convalescent de musset's reach she became blindly infatuated with the young doctor de musset jealously sick and sickly jealous was quick to see how matters stood and with true gallic sensationalism he rose to the dramatic occasion first he swore eternal brotherhood and loyalty to the doctor whom he scarcely knew and then joining the embarrassed pagello's hand to george sand's 
the poet tearfully declaimed i know all you love each other take him aurore as the parting gift of a lover you have ceased to love take her pietro as a memento of your sworn friend adieu both of you forever de musset strode from the room in a style that would have evoked an applause storm from even a deaf and dumb gallery he left italy and came back to france there he loudly bewailed his fate and moaned rhythmically anent the false flame of woman's love meanwhile george sand found to her surprise that she loved the dramatic de musset far more than she loved pagello she followed de musset to paris bringing pagello along for good measure when she had gone to italy with de musset paris had gasped even the usual latitude allowed to geniuses had been perilously stretched when de musset had returned orpheus like weeping all over the strings of his lyre paris had wept with him but now that the heroine of the escapade followed in full chase of the discarded one dragging his successor in her wake paris howled with inextinguishable laughter de musset poetically sensitive to every change of opinion refused to make himself ridiculous while renewing his vow of brotherly friendship for pagello he utterly refused to see george sand or to answer one of her thousand beseeching letters pagello too began to feel supremely uncomfortable in his thankless role of excess baggage he squirmed nervously in search of a door of escape he quickly found one monsieur de musset must hate me for what i have done he announced to all who would stop laughing long enough to listen to him he has probably sworn a blood feud against me i will not remain here to become the victim of a vendetta and he fled incontinently to his native italy leaving george sand alone to face the now redoubled spasms of public mirth tragically humorless deaf to snicker and guffaw she set herself to the tedious task of winning back de musset when letters were of no avail she sought to waylay him in the street or elsewhere forewarned he kept to his rooms then she stationed herself on his doorstep and wept there like a modern and uglier niobe for all to see de musset kept still closer hidden from view in desperation the unhappy woman resolved to follow the historic example of ninon de l'enclos in reclaiming an errant lover she cut off her heavy black hair her one beauty and sent it by messenger to the coy de musset the sacrifice was vain perhaps the beauty-loving poet remembering how homely she had looked even with her luxuriant hair drew a vivid mind-picture of what she must look like without it at all events he made no sign of forgiveness one day de musset coming unguardedly out of his apartment collided on the stairs with the weeping woman there was a partial and very temporary reconciliation followed soon by a permanent break george sand 
tingling with hurt pride proceeded to write a novel wherein under a painfully thin and open-work veil she told the story of her love affair with de musset it is waste of space to add that she told it from her own angle depicting herself as a gentle too loving martyr and painting de musset as a false affected ludicrously worthless personage the novel set paris to jabbering as noisily as it had just laughed de musset was regarded as a monster a monument of duplicity and his former sweetheart as a patient saint but the poet was not long in preparing a counterblast promptly he threw into the arena a book in which under still thinner disguise he gave his own version of the story in this volume de musset was a trusting lover and george sand a viper there were further recriminations in print and out of it literary paris was divided into two camps between the pro mussets and the pro sands the war raged merrily swinburne crystallized the case in a deathless epigram de musset was wrong but george did not behave as a gentleman should for a time george sand turned to her work for oblivion she wrote eight hours a day her novels were among the foremost of the century she was france's best-known woman the men who had loved her served now as characters for her books as had de musset mercilessly she dissected them memories of the physiology professor and held up to scorn their faults their frailties their crass humanness there was gnashing of teeth there was recognition wholesale there was protest there were legions of threats to prosecute said merry old abby list himself a heart conqueror of renown each of your admirers madame is a butterfly which you lure to you by honey impale upon the pin of jealousy or boredom and finally vivisect in a novel after a mere breathing space came what was probably the grand passion of george sand's ultra-passionate life a romance with none of the ironic humor that lighted her affair with de musset the hero victim what you will was frederick chopin too fiery soul in too fragile body genius wonder musician dreamer the man had always been tossed on misfortune's waters hammered by them till his mighty soul had well-nigh torn free from the failing flesh and at this period of all others fate threw him into the life of george sand he was slender weak almost effeminate in his unfleshliness she was brutally robust mannish aggressive his exact opposite and they loved loved more deeply more all-absorbingly than either had loved before in a mutually long era of heart-destroying in fact george sand loved chopin as she loved nothing else on earth with the sole exception of her idolized self 
the hand of death was already on chopin when he and george sand met this super vital woman seemed to breathe into him some of her own tireless vitality his health rallied it was said by fanciful acquaintances that george sand's life was keeping life in her lover she heard and was glad and hastened to proclaim the wonder to her friends adding thereby a leaf to her martyr crown by sheer will-power and excess vital force she actually buoyed up her frail lover's sinking strength and gave him a new lease of living this did not prevent her from quarrelling fiercely and frequently with him as she always did with every man or woman who came into personal acquaintance with her chopin begged her to marry him she refused one venture in matrimony had sufficed her not even to make happy the man she loved would she essay a second trial of wedlock in her first onrush of devotion for chopin she could not blind herself to the fact that even as she had tired of others so she might one day tire of him and divorces in france were not easy to get hence the dying chopin's supreme wish went ungratified as had many a lesser wish during his affair with her the sick composer had known many loves yet from the hour he met george sand he seems to have been steadfast to that single devotion it is not on record that he so much as aroused her ever wakeful jealousy and he is probably the only man of her love-starred career who did not which is odd in view of this assertion by one of chopin's biographers he found himself unable to avoid accepting some of the numberless hearts that were flung like roses at his feet he could modulate from one love affair to another as fleetly and as gracefully as from one key to its remote neighbor here too is the account given by a later chronicler of the composer's meeting with george sand one evening as he was entering a house where a literary reception was in progress chopin fancied he was pursued by a violet-scented phantom in superstitious fear he would have left the house at once but friends who were with him laughed away his dread and described the phenomenon as the fancy of a sick man's brain he entered the crowded salon and was forthwith presented to the guest of honor a swarthy and strange-looking woman the premier novelist madame du devant george sand in his diary that same night chopin wrote of his new acquaintance i do not like her face there is something in it that repels me yet within a day or so he was her adorer for a time all went as well as any love story could with such a heroine she gloried in her power to build up for the moment her lover's waning strength her friend's praise of the feat was as music to her but she was not the type of woman who can forever wait patiently upon a fretful convalescent's whims her self-sacrifice was a flash not a steady flame and in time she girded at the restraints of playing nurse and vitality giver then instead of boasting as before she waxed complaining she told the world at large 
how exacting and cross and tiresome chopin was she once referred to him publicly as that detestable invalid she announced that she was his ever patient comrade and nurse there is no authority but hers to bear out the claim of patience and so the once beautiful relationship dragged out its weary length until george sand could endure the strain no longer she deserted chopin not content with this final blow to the invalid who had loved her for years she continued to vilify him among her complaints was one that has since passed in slightly altered form into a good old reliable vaudeville wheeze she wrote we never addressed a single reproach to each other except once and that was from the first to the last time we met george sand's desertion was chopin's death-blow he never rallied from it he tried to mask his heartbreak by going about as before and appearing often in public but even this was soon denied to him not only by collapsed health but from the danger of meeting his former divinity at the houses he chanced to visit or on the streets one such lesson was enough for him it was in a friend's crowded drawing-room a historian describes the encounter thinking herself unobserved george sand walked up to chopin and held out her hand frederick she murmured in a voice audible to him alone he saw her familiar form standing before him she was repentant subdued and seeking reconciliation his handsome face grew deadly pale and without a word he left the room the end came soon afterward chopin's mortal illness struck him down dying he sent for his lost love perhaps the message never reached her perhaps she thought it a trick she had tried something of the sort on de musset perhaps she did not realize that the time was so short at all events she paid no heed to the frantic appeal that she come at once to the dying composer hour after hour chopin waited for her his ears strained for the sound of her heavy tread at last he grew to realize that she would not obey the summons that he would never again see her as hope fled chopin broke down and cried piteously she promised i should die in no arms but hers he sobbed over and over and that night he died no less than seven different women claiming later to have taken his recreant sweetheart's place at his deathbed george sand was conscience-stricken she wrote and proclaimed long and more or less plausible reasons to account for her failure to go to chopin but no one who really knew her was convinced of her excuses truth and so ended one more of her heart stories de musset by the way refused to admit her to his rooms when he himself lay dying a grisly joke that paris appreciated back to her work as once before george sand fled for forgetfulness and her fame grew she was the most prolific woman writer by the way in literature's history writing in all 
twenty plays, and more than one hundred novels. An Englishman, name buried, courted her at about this time. Still miserable over Chopin's death, and far more so over the way people were talking about her treatment of him, she was decidedly waspish to the trans-channel admirer. Seeking to win her interest in a literary discussion, he opened one conversation by inquiring, Madame de Devant, what is your favorite novel? Olympia, she answered without a second of hesitance. Olympia, the Englishman repeated, vainly ransacking his memory. I don't think I recall any book of that name. Of course you don't, she snapped. I haven't written it yet and perhaps or perhaps not his british brain some day unraveled the meaning of cryptic retort for her infidelities george sand felt no compunction she wrote frankly concerning them i have never imposed constancy upon myself when i have felt that love is dead i have said so without shame or remorse and have obeyed providence that was leading me elsewhere by her marriage with Dudevant, she had had a son and a daughter. The daughter, Solange, inherited much of her mother's lawlessness, with none of the latter's inspiration. And now, George Sand was to see how her own nature worked in another of the same blood. She arranged a splendid marriage for Solange, a marriage with a man of rank and money. And, on the very eve of the wedding, Solange proceeded to elope with a poor sculptor, Clesinger by name. The mother was equal to the emergency. She ran after the fugitives, caught them, bullied Clesinger into marrying Solange, hushed all scandal, and installed the young couple in a Paris flat, settling on them the bulk of her property. In revenge, Clesinger permanently estranged Solange from her mother. Soon afterward, George Sand's sway over men's hearts ceased. Whether she was weary of love, or whether love was weary of her, the old fascination deserted her. No more as lovers, but as profound admirers of her intellect, great men still flocked about her. Matthew Arnold, Flaubert, Fouillet, and a host of others. But it was now her brain alone they worshipped by many years george sand outlived her charm dying in eighteen seventy six at the age of seventy-two her grandchildren about her a smugly proper if sadly anticlimacteric ending to a career in which anticlimax had been almost as infrequent as propriety end of chapter eight recording by linda johnson